Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this week's The Space Show, a progress report on the Artemis One mission to the Moon and the trials and tribulations of the tiny fellow travellers. But first up, we have Space Show News. The Artemis Accords are agreements between 21 countries designed to facilitate a shared vision for civil space exploration, science and commercial activities for all humanity. Australia is a signatory to these accords. As part of Australia's contribution, the Australian Research Council has announced funding for a new Adelaide-based research centre for Excellence in Plants for Space. The aim is to develop nutritious food, on-demand supply of materials and medicines for the next generation of space explorers. The project will be led by the University of Adelaide in partnership with Australian and overseas organisations and institutions. One of these is Flinders University. The centre will be funded to the tune of $90 million, including $600,000 from the South Australian State Government. The funding will commence next year. The research centre will create new plant efficiency solutions for challenging earth environments. It will also develop intensive, sustainable production, plant-based foods with potential to reduce agriculture's carbon footprint. The director of the new centre has been named as Professor Matthew Gilliham of the University of Adelaide. He said the Plants for Space Centre will create the flexible, plant-based solutions needed to support human physical and psychological well-being during deep space travel and settlement. He also said the mission is to reimagine plant design and bioresource production. This would enable off-Earth habitation and provide transformative solutions to improve on-Earth sustainability. The Centre's Deputy Director is Professor Melissa Desart of Flinders University. She said that they would train 400 researchers and produce the next generation of industry-focused experts. The University of Melbourne is one of the institutions involved in the Plants for Space project. Another is La Trobe University. Let's take a trip to the moon Come on, let's go for the moon I wanna go to the moon Let's take a trip to the moon Yes, the rest of this evening's The Space Show is devoted to the Artemis One mission which has gone around the back of the moon. Yes, the Orion spaceship has flown behind the moon. And we have this report from Mission Control in Houston on the close flyby of the moon. We're now five days, six hours and 27 minutes into the historic flight of Artemis One. 
the Orion spacecraft just recently emerged from the backside of the moon after completing the outbound powered flyby. Coming up at MET, five days, six hours and 52 minutes, which is about 54 minutes after the OPF burnout. Orion is slated to fly extremely close to the Apollo 11 landing site. The Apollo 11 landing site, named Tranquility Base, was where Commander Neil Armstrong and Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin touched down on July 20th, 1969, 53 years ago. During the flyover, Orion will be 1,384 statute miles above the landing site. As Orion continues to swing around the moon toward entry into distant retrograde orbit, we were just getting some views of the Earth from about 220,000 miles away. 33 minutes ago, Orion completed the outbound-powered flyby burn, which lasted 2 minutes and 30 seconds, which sent Orion close enough to the lunar surface to leverage the moon's gravitational force and swing the spacecraft around the moon toward entry into distant retrograde orbit. Next up for Orion will be... In will be insertion into distant retrograde orbit where it will remain for one half long elliptical orbit around the moon. Following this, Orion will complete a similar maneuver in which it flies behind the moon in a return power flyby. And as you might expect, just the opposite of the outbound powered flyby. This maneuver will help put Orion on a trajectory to return back to Earth and splash down in the Pacific Ocean on December 11th. So Orion passed within 130 kilometers of the lunar surface. The speed was increased, note increased, by the orbital maneuvering system engine from 3,400 kilometers per hour to 8,323 kilometers per hour. And uh, she, it was mentioned there it was going to go into a distant retrograde orbit. Well, that will happen on Friday. And what you ask is a distant retrograde orbit? Well, we heard this explanation. The outbound-powered flyby will send Orion close enough to the lunar surface to leverage the moon's gravitational force and swing the spacecraft once around the moon toward entry into what we call a distant retrograde orbit. Following this, Orion will remain in the distant retrograde orbit for one long elliptical orbit around the moon, lasting about six days. Now, this orbit is called distant due to the high altitude from the moon. It's about 40,000 miles past the moon in its orbit, which is actually 30,000 miles farther than the previous record set during Apollo 13. And this will be the farthest in space any spacecraft built for humans will have ever flown. This orbit is also called retrograde because Orion will be traveling around the moon opposite the direction the moon travels around the Earth. This DRO provides a highly stable orbit where little fuel is required to stay for an extended trip in deep space in order to put Orion's systems through its paces and to the tests in an environment far from Earth ahead of crewed flights. Also, you heard mention of the orbital maneuvering system engine. Again, we heard this explanation. 
If you're just joining us, we're bringing you live coverage of today's upcoming outbound-powered flyby burn, which will slingshot us around the backside of the moon. Today's burn will take place with the Orbital Maneuvering System, or OMS, engine. This engine has been used several times throughout Orion's five-day journey to the moon. This is that large engine located on the bottom of the service module, and the engine can provide 6,000 pounds of thrust. Today's burn will last 2 minutes and 30 seconds, but the burn can be used for burns lasting up to 16 minutes in length. The OMS engine onboard Orion is a repurposed Space Shuttle Orbital Maneuvering System engine that has flown in space before. It flew on 19 Space Shuttle flights, beginning with STS-41G in October of 1984 and ending with STS-112 in October of 2002. Now, the OMS engine is not the only engine on board the Orion spacecraft. There are also eight auxiliary engines. These are located on the bottom of the service module in, as well, but in four sets of two. These are used to provide trajectory corrections and as a backup to the main engine. And each engine provides about one th 100 pounds of thrust. In total, there are 33 engines aboard Orion. So, on the basis that a very distant relationship is a relationship of, of sorts. That orbital maneuvering system engine on Orion has a connection to Australia. Huh? You say, how come? Well, the first flight of that engine was on STS-41G, the Space Shuttle Challenger, in 1984, October. And guess who was aboard that flight? Paul Scully Power, the first Australian ever to go into space. He spent eight days and five and a half hours and did 132 orbits of the Earth. And he was very glad that that OMS engine fired successfully to slow the shuttle down and bring him back down to Earth. Also glad for the same reason was pilot Pam Malroy on STS-112. That was in 2002 October on the Space Shuttle Atlantis. Well, Pam Malroy is now Deputy Administrator and previously was a frequent visitor to Australia as a consultant for one of our space companies. So there you have it, some connection to Australia. Many of you will have a piece of technology on your mobile telephone and perhaps even a computer called Alexa. Some of you may have used it. Well, there is Alexa aboard the Orion spacecraft. This is an explanation of how Alexa works. So one of the strong reasons we, after chatting with Amazon, we then reached out to Cisco, who's um, the premier leader in, in connectivity, I would say, uh, because we realized uh, we wanted to have a, um, an exercise of the system without the crew on board that would connect us to what we call virtual crew members back um, in the mission control center um, in what is called the Ops Suite 5 that we'll be using throughout the mission. So the concept is uh, from mission control, uh, testers, uh, you could call them virtual crew members in a way, um, will ask a question of uh, Alexa via the WebEx system. We'll be able to then um, observe, because of the cameras and speakers and microphones we have on board, we'll observe um, that that did come out through the speakers in the, in the spacecraft. 
uh, Alexa will process that audio in the spacecraft in that acoustic environment, which I can tell you I learned more about acoustics than I thought I ever would. Um, it is not designed for acoustics, right? It's a small metal enclosure. So we had to work through all of that. She'll interpret that voice control and actually um, by being connected to the telemetry stream in Orion, provide information and data synthesis from the actual spacecraft. So they're not pre-recorded messages. It's not canned things. Um, it's actual real-time processing of the onboard computer data through the telemetry interfaces, and then she'll respond. Um, the key is that all of that smart has to be on the spacecraft because we didn't want to suffer the time lag of going back up to the spacecraft, back down to Earth, back up and back down again uh, for the Alexa device to connect out to the internet. So um, her voice processing, everything that happens in the cloud here on Earth is actually embedded on a dedicated spacecraft computer in the space, excuse me, in the spacecraft. So we'll interact with her via the WebEx connectivity uh, video conference and she'll respond in real time with real data from the spacecraft to test out the technology end-to-end. -end. And why was Alexa chosen? For both of our partners, um, we, we looked at what uh, the technologies that were out there, but also at the kind of common mission statements we saw with the companies. Uh, and I'll be honest, we picked up the phone and, and called Amazon, and it was one of those, uh, hey, what do you think about flying a, an Alexa on the other side of the moon? And I expected to get um, a very puzzled response, but instead they they explained uh, that one of the, uh, and this is their story, but they share it a lot, uh, one of the progenitors of, for Alexa, one of the, um, the thoughts that they had, uh, if you will, was um, the uh, voice computer from Starship Enterprise. And so in some ways they said, we've kind of been waiting for this this moment in some ways. So as soon as we started talking with them, and talked about some of their uh, local here on Earth activities where they have to operate Alexa without the internet, we realized it was a really awesome test case um, for what they wanted to do. So um, the response was so strong um, and the um, technologies and the knowledge was so deep uh, and our kind of commitment to the mission and connectivity was, um, was really powerful off the get-go that we just never looked back. Aboard the spacecraft are two phantom females. Why were they there? Why are they called phantoms, and how did Helga and Zohar get their name? I'll answer the scientific question first. Um, so um, the phantoms we are using, or Helga and Zohar, uh, they are in principle based on phantoms uh, which are used on Earth uh, for radiation treatment planning in hospitals. So if you, uh, if you work uh, on, on cancer treatment plans in hospitals, uh, you use uh, phantoms, which are so-called anthropomorphic phantoms, which reassemble, in principle, a human body. So both for Helga and Sohar, they are made out of different materials, out of epoxy resin, which different uh, substitutes to really reassemble like human bones, human lung tissue, human brain tissue. So in principle, the phantoms are tissue equivalent. To have radiation passing through the phantoms, the interaction of these radiations are similar to the interaction of radiation passing through a human body. That's why they are called uh, anthropomorphic phantoms. Actually based or come from cancer therapy applications. And since we are talking about space radiation, and you know, 
in, uh, in cancer therapy, you also use protons or carbon ions to treat cancer, and the radiation field in space also has these proton ions and these carbon ions. It's a little bit more complicated, but in principle, we just translate these medical phantoms into space. Concerning the names, well, as far as I know, for Sohar, since Sohar is the Israel phantom, there was a naming ideas to find out the name for Sohar, and at the end, Sohar came up, and I think Sohar is, is an Hebrew name, and it means actually, I think, in, uh, in English, uh, radiant, so that's actually quite fine. And Helga uh, was the same. I mean, Helga is a very typical, let's call it a German name for the phantoms. The Space Association of Australia presents this program for Southern FM and we hold public meetings free of charge on the fourth Monday of each month, except next month in December we're going to have a, a, an earlier than usual meeting. But anyway, let's get on to this month. Uh, that's this coming Monday the fourth Monday of the month, and our meetings are held between 7 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., and we meet at the Golden Gate Hotel. Now, the Golden Gate Hotel is at 238 Clarendon Street. That's on the northwestern corner of Clarendon Street and Coventry Street, and we'll be upstairs in the Coventry Room. Now, it's free, but you can purchase meals and drinks. And uh, we have talks and discussions on current spaceflight activities. If you want to join us beforehand at 6 o'clock or, you know, any time between 6 and 7, downstairs uh, you can purchase meals and drinks and, uh, you know, enjoy some good company. So the meeting itself is no charge, but if you want to buy a drink or um, have a meal, then there is the pub charge that they have for that so please join us this coming monday between 7 and 9 30 p.m or six o'clock if you want the meal southern fm the sounds of the bayside now jeff radigan is the flight director for artemis one at the johnson space center three days out into the mission he gave this report well, I got to tell you, it's uh, it's a great day to be in the control center anytime we're flying a spacecraft to the moon. It's just a, a lot of fun for all of us that are operating the vehicle and uh, checking it out, putting it through its paces. Today, the team was out uh, doing the uh, survey of the external of the crew module and the uh, service module using the Orion cameras to take a look at uh, every inch of the vehicle that we can see, really check out uh, and see how the exterior surface of the vehicle is, is doing. Of course, the team's preparing uh, for the uh, outbound flyby and, uh, you know, the, the OPF maneuver that's coming up. We've got a couple of trajectory corrections before we get there uh, that we'll do over the next couple of days. And then, of course, we'll do the burn uh, 70 nautical miles off the backside of the moon uh, for about two and a half minutes. And the burn will uh, really put us on our way to the distant retrograde orbit, uh, which is where we're going to continue the checkout of Orion. All of us will really be uh, looking to receive data since the burn is done on the backside of the moon and uh, we'll lose calm with the vehicle for a, a little bit of time. It'll aut autonomously do the burn and then uh, we'll pick data up and see how Orion's doing. That'll lead us to uh, a actually four days later where we'll do the, uh, the DRI burn, the distant retrograde <coughs> insertion, which is what really is the final step of putting us into lunar orbit. 
uh, and that'll be uh, another minute and a half burn that Orion will do and uh, drop us off into the orbit where we'll continue to check out Orion. So uh, you probably hear it in my voice. It's very exciting just for us in Mission Control. Uh, it's been a very exciting mission. There's been a couple of couple of anomalies we've had to work, but overall a very clean mission, and uh, we're really, really having a good time. Uh, Jim Jeffrey is the integration manager for the Orion vehicle. Wednesday was quite a stunning event for the, the entire team. It was a fantastic uh, performance by the rocket to deliver Orion to space. Uh, and it's been a really exciting few days for both the team and the, the spacecraft as we learn how this system operates in the, the deep space environment. Uh, it's a good reminder that this is the first time in 50 years that a human exploration spacecraft has left low Earth orbit and been sent to the moon. Orion's been performing great so far. All the systems are exceeding expectations from a performance standpoint, and we have full mission functionality with the upcoming outbound powered flyby burn. Uh, it's, the team's been able to gather a lot of great data to learn how, how those systems are performing in space. You know, no ground test is a perfect representation of, of flying in the real environment. And so we've been able to collect this data use it to update our models, understand how the system is trending, and make decisions for our up upcoming mission events. As Jeff said, we have the big burn coming up on early Monday morning, the separation of Orion from the interim cryopropulsion stage. Once the ICPS finished its job and sent us on through the TLI, Orion fired its pyrotechnic frangible nuts and uh, separated from the ICPS. The um, solar arrays have, have been articulating uh, during the deployment event. There's four different solar arrays on board Orion. Each are about four meters long. And one of the things we've already learned from the mission is that, is that we're collecting more power than we expected. Altogether, we have over 13 kilowatts of, of power that can um, power the, the equipment on board. The deployment uh, went great. Other systems have also been performing fantastically. Uh, we've had better than expected heat rejection. We're using less power than anticipated. So all these things are, are giving us good confidence in being able to move forward with the mission and also expand our capabilities as we go forward. Mike Sarafin is the mission manager for Artemis One, and he gave his update. Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you for continuing to follow the Artemis program and the Artemis One mission in terms of flight test objectives, as we talked prior to the mission, we have four primary objectives. Priority one is demonstrate the vehicle at lunar reentry conditions. Priority two is to demonstrate the vehicle in the flight environment. Priority three is to retrieve the vehicle. And priority four is what we call bonus objectives associated with science, uh, technology demonstrations, and outreach to each and every one of you. Uh, we have completed the first half of priority one with the space launch system delivering a ride to the point of translunar injection and uh, putting all of the kinetic and potential energy into the spacecraft and now we need to take that out and we will realize the second half of that objective on uh, entry and splashdown day. Priority two and priority four, um, we are 20% complete with uh, the objectives uh, 26 of 140, 124 objectives are already complete. We have 40% uh, of the remaining objectives or 50 of the 124 in progress. And then we have about 40% uh, or, or 48 of the 124 remaining uh, ahead of us. 
but overall the mission in just three short days is proceeding uh, and, and exceeding expectations. In terms of payloads, uh, we did successfully deploy all 10 of the uh, 10 CubeSats. Uh, we are getting uh, reports from uh, a number of the, of the payload customers that show that um, uh, half of them are, are successfully executing their mission, the other half are working through a series of, uh, of issues with either intermittent communications or just uh, some of the CubeSats themselves are, are having uh, difficulties. Um, one of those is a, a success story that we were concerned about prior to flight, which was the Luna HMAP. Uh, CubeSat that we were concerned uh, had a low battery state of charge. Um, that one actually is on path to have a successful mission. The uh, payloads on board Orion, three of the four that we have, uh, we don't get any real-time uh, telemeter data from the uh, bio, uh, uh, bio experiment number one. All that data is recovered, uh, recorded on board and recovered post-flight. The uh, ESA active dosimeter experiment, again, is recorded on board and recovered post-flight as well as the uh, Matryoshka-ASCO-RAD uh, experiment or MARI experiment that is recorded on board and recovered post-flight. But the uh, Callisto technology demonstration payload um, has checked out. We've checked it out through the Deep Space Network. We've had a Snoopy sighting in the cockpit. Let's take a trip to the moon. Come on, let's go for the moon. Let's take a trip to the moon. In Qatar, some folks are trying their best to propel small spherical leather objects into a rectangular net. Elsewhere on Earth, other folks are trying to direct small cuboidal objects into or around a very distant and large spherical object. That object is of course, the moon, and the cuboidal objects are a cluster of 10 CubeSats launched with Artemis 1. The Omotenashi project was very ambitious. It intended to land the smallest ever spacecraft on the moon. Now, by small, think 700 grams. Yes, 700 grams. After a valiant struggle to overcome numerous problems, the mission team had to give up and have their lander make an uncontrolled flyby of the moon and onto heliocentric orbit. After separation from the Space Launch System rocket, the radio signal from Omotenashi was unstable, making it challenging to get telemetry from NASA's Deep Space Network station in Madrid. When the CubeSat was finally found and the signal locked onto, the project team in Japan discovered the solar cells were facing away from the sun. Worse still, Omotenashi was rotating fast. The team decided to use the propulsion system to stop its spin rather than attempt to use the attitude control system to direct the solar cells at the sun. After that, they switched operations from stopping the spin to changing the spin axis to obtain solar direction. This decision was made because the battery voltage was dropping. However, the battery power was depleted and the radio transmission stopped when Madrid stopped tracking it. The 
Omotenashi team thought that no components on the spacecraft were broken. On Thursday, the team expressed a determination to press on and recover the craft's attitude and power and to complete the mission. They asked for amateur radio hams to listen in for the satellite on 137.31 megahertz and for the surface probe after landing on 100, sorry, on 437.41 megahertz. Meanwhile, the project team was considering driving the reaction wheel in manual mode to change the attitude. On November the 21st, the team reported that, regrettably, radio waves from the spacecraft were not being received. They were assuming that the orbit of the spacecraft was almost the same as when it separated from the rocket. Just in case, they considered the possibility that the orbit was off, and they moved the direction of the tracking antenna to widen the search angle. They had planned to use the 64-metre diameter antenna at the USADA station in Japan, but decided to use the 34-metre antenna in Yushinura because it has a wider antenna beam width. Late on Monday, the project team realised that the originally planned landing method could not be carried out. They hoped that if it recovered by the end of the day, Omotenashi would still be able to slow down with its solid rocket and freefall to the lunar surface when passing its perilunar point, that is, the closest point to the moon. The team worked feverishly late into the evening to develop and confirm the procedure for establishing three-axis attitude control, preparation for the landing, and transmitting the landing sequence. To that end, they prepared a command file. They conducted an operational rehearsal using the spacecraft simulator to see if there were any problems with this procedure. They also booked time with NASA's Deep Space Network. Early yesterday, the project team said that, unfortunately, they were unable to receive a signal from Omotenashi. The lunar landing experiment could not be carried out. The craft passed the moon and is continuing on a curved path into heliocentric orbit. On November the 27th, it will depart the Earth's gravitational sphere of influence. Although the team has given up spacecraft operations for now, they think the solar cells will be illuminated in March next year. They say that they would like to resume exploration operations at that time and to carry out test items that can be done in orbit. And we have more of the sad news about the, um, the CubeSats after these messages. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Where this is the space show. Equalus is one of two Japanese CubeSats launched on the Artemis 1 mission. E-Q-U-U-L-E-U-S is an acronym for Equilibrium Lunar Earth Point 6U spacecraft. <laughs> it carries two scientific instruments and is designed to be placed at the second Lagrange point of the Earth-Moon system. This is a point directly 50,000 kilometres behind the Moon. 
because Equilus will not sit exactly at L2, but will instead orbit it, the craft will be able to communicate with Earth. Now this is important to the operation of the two instruments. One is called DELPHINUS, which is an acronym for Detection Camera for Lunar Impact Phenomena in 6U Spacecraft. DELPHINUS is a camera to observe the flashes made by meteorites and asteroids hitting the far side of the moon. Now, if the names Equilus and Delphinus sound familiar, it is because they are two of the 88 recognized constellations of stars. The Equilus spacecraft was proposed by the University of Tokyo and the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. After the initial flyby of the moon this week, Equilus plans to demonstrate low-energy trajectory control techniques. In addition to looking for flashes of light from lunar impacts, the Delphinus camera will observe near-Earth objects such as asteroids, comets, and many moons temporarily captured into orbit around the Earth. The second scientific experiment on Equilus is a small ultraviolet telescope named Phoenix. No, Phoenix is not the mythical immortal bird. This is an acronym for Plasmospheric Helium Ion Observation by Enhanced New Imager in Extreme Ultraviolet. Helium ions emit light with a wavelength of 30.4 nanometers. Such ions surround the Earth in what is called the plasmosphere. It is held in place by the Earth's magnetic field. By being 500,000 kilometers from Earth, Phoenix will provide the whole image of the Earth's plasmosphere and be able to observe how it changes. The L2 point is the Earth's moon system, or in the Earth moon system, will likely be important for future spaceflight. It could be the site of a future spaceport for deep space exploration. A spacecraft can arrive and depart from L2 with little amount of orbital control. Departing spacecraft can transfer to various orbits such as Earth orbits, Moon orbits and interplanetary trajectories. Now, Equilus separated normally from the SLS rocket and on November the 16th was confirmed to be operating normally. Three days later, the Equilus team reported that they had completed the eighth communication pass with the spacecraft. Orbit determination, establishment of triaxial attitude control, and normal operation of the water propulsion system were confirmed. Yes, water propulsion. Plans were being made to correct the course for the moon flyby. Now, since water propulsion had never been done before, the team had to master the technique for in just a few days. Had the water propulsion not worked, Equilus would have swung around the moon, swept past the Earth, and out into interplanetary space to endlessly orbit the sun. On November the 20th, Equilus was 370,000 kilometers from Earth and on course for lunar flyby and thence onto a, that L2 Lagrange point. 
On November the 21st, the operations team reported that they had successfully achieved the orbital control required to enter and orbit using the gravity of the moon and the sun. Now, this is called a low-energy transfer. The path after the lunar flyby is barycentric, one that orbits both the Earth and the moon. The closest approach to the moon by Equalis was 5,000 kilometres at 1.25 a.m. Japan time on November the 22nd. Uh, that was 3.25 a.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Later that day, Equalis was contacted confirming a successful lunar flyby. The trajectory was being monitored to see if corrections were required. So it looks like it's all going well with the second of these Japanese spacecraft. Well, another satellite that was launched on the um, Artemis 1 mission was Lunar HMAP. And Craig Hardgrove is Assistant Professor at the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. And uh, he had uh, this to say about the concept. I'm Craig Hardgrove, and I'm leading a team of researchers that's sending this spacecraft to the moon. This isn't a scaled-down version. This is the actual size of our spacecraft. It's called the Lunar Polar Hydrogen Mapper, or LUNAMAP for short. LUNAMAP will launch on one of the most powerful rockets ever built by NASA, and this tiny spacecraft will propel itself into lunar orbit using its own propulsion system. And that's a first for a spacecraft this small. As with any first, it's also very risky. I want to tell you about this mission, why we're going to the moon, and why it's worth the risk. We're sending LUNAMAP to the moon to sniff out just how much hydrogen is beneath the surface. And we're looking for hydrogen because it's a key component of water. Water is geologically interesting on the moon. How did it get there? It's also important for future human exploration since it could be used as fuel. The moon could be a jumping off point for the rest of the solar system. But the moon is a harsh place. It barely has any atmosphere at all. The temperature can change by more than 100 degrees from day to night. And in that type of environment, any ice or water that's hit by sunlight would immediately be lost to space. But there's a lot of scientific evidence that suggests water ice could be present on the moon within special, eternally dark crater floors at the South Pole. These regions are in permanent shadow. They're some of the coldest places in the entire solar system. So that's where LUNAMAP is headed. LUNAMAP will carry a tiny science instrument called a neutron detector, which is sensitive to the low-energy neutrons that are leaking out of the top meter of the moon's surface. We can use that total number of neutrons to determine how much hydrogen is trapped below. And that, too, is something that's never before been attempted on a spacecraft this small. But in order to improve upon the previous measurements of ice at the moon's south pole, LUNAMAP needs to get very close. Really, really close. It turns out we need to be about 30,000 feet above the surface of the moon, which is the typical cruising altitude for a commercial airplane. But we need to make our measurements while orbiting over the moon at about 4,000 miles per hour. And that's eight times faster than your typical commercial airplane. All of this, you guessed it, is a first for a spacecraft this small. So you might reasonably wonder where an audacious idea like a shoebox-sized spacecraft capable of doing all these things came from. About 10 years ago, a university professor wanted to come up with class projects for his engineering students. The idea was to have them build small, functional benchtop components that might be used on a spacecraft, but with the added engineering challenge of making them fit into a very tiny box. 
These were just student learning tools and demonstrations. So when thinking about the dimensions of his tiny box, he decided on a beanie baby box. 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. He called them CubeSats. Surely, he thought, something this small would never fly into space and never actually do anything useful. But as a student training exercise, they were perfect. The idea of CubeSats was a success. Universities across the country adopted CubeSats, and they became a successful teaching tool and development platform. Perhaps a little too successful, because piece by piece, over the last 10 years, the components that make up LunaMap have been developed at or in partnership with universities, their faculty, their students, and staff. So over the years, if students were lucky enough, their CubeSats would be launched into low Earth orbit to test their designs in space. And they wound up not just testing designs, but developing new miniaturized spacecraft technologies. Eventually, university students developed radios, instruments, reaction wheels, propulsion systems, and many other components, until someone asked a really good question. Don't all these components put together make up an interplanetary spacecraft? <laughs> and they do, as long as we accept the inherent risk of using any new technology. Take a different industry from our own lives, for example, smartphones. No one gives up on smartphones entirely if there are bugs in the first version. New technology always improves over time, but the first version is a little risky. And there's a funny thing that happens when you start accepting risk, and accepting a lot of it. With a risky spacecraft, you can do risky things. Things you wouldn't normally do on a typical big NASA mission that takes decades to design, build, and fly. Think about it. Would you risk your spacecraft after a decade of work? It's not likely, but with shorter development times, smaller teams, lower costs, it actually allows you to embrace risk and hopefully reap the rewards. In fact, I'd argue that this is fundamental to what makes tiny missions like these worth doing. You may remember probe droids from Star Wars. <laughs> Expendable robots deployed to capture unique, hard-to-get data about, say, a rebel base. Imagine if we had a dozen or more tiny probes on every NASA mission. They could fly low over the icy surface of Europa, transmit valuable data from the atmosphere of Venus on descent just before being crushed by the intense atmospheric pressure. These probes can act as interplanetary scouts, deploying from a primary spacecraft, maneuvering to intersect with asteroids that no spacecraft has ever before visited. And these are just a few examples of the type of risky but highly rewarding missions that these tiny probes might take on as we venture out further into the solar system. Now, risk is a part of all of our lives, and it can be scary. But very few rewards come without risk. Personally, I chose to pursue this mission as a postdoc at ASU. It's uncommon to give a moon mission to someone who is essentially fresh out of their PhD. But despite the risks, I put everything I had into it. I devoted many months of pulling together our team and working on the proposal. And our team, despite the risks, put everything they had into it, too. I'll be honest, we all knew the chances of success were low, and the risk of failing was high. But the rewards were even higher, and that's what kept and keeps us going. It should sound familiar. High risk, high reward. The concept of these tiny spacecraft is something that we all truly believe in. It represents a vision of a future world that we want to live in, where space is more accessible than ever, and to many more people than ever before. And that makes the risk of working on LunaMap worth it. I wouldn't have done anything else. And the best part is I get to lead this visionary team of people and work with colleagues every day who believe in it, too. Well, Craig Hargrave, uh, high risk. <laughs> well, we'll find about that in a moment. After deployment from the SLS rocket, Lunar HMAP wants to use its low-thrust iodine ion propulsion system to position itself into a highly elliptical orbit with perisilene over the South Pole. 
and it will take up to 70 days for the spacecraft to be weakly captured by the moon's gravity. Then another year would be required to achieve an elliptical operational orbit. The target orbit has an apocelene of 3,150 kilometres and periceline of 8 kilometres. The objective is to have two months of science collection. Well, on November 17, the Lunar HMAP team reported that their spacecraft had called home some five and a half hours after liftoff and that its batteries were charging. The team were receiving signals and had successfully sent a command and received confirmation. Yesterday, the spacecraft was healthy and all systems would go for last night's lunar flyby. The solar arrays had been successfully commissioned and the radio, neutron spectrometer and various spacecraft bus systems had been checked out. The neutron spectrometer collected a set of cruise data that indicated the detector is functioning normally. However, all has not gone well for Lunar HMAP. The day after the launch, the mission team powered on the propulsion system. After many ignition attempts, the system was not able to achieve thrust prior to yesterday morning's lunar flyby. This propulsive manoeuvre was required to put a uh, uh, so as a, was required as a step towards putting the craft into its planned polar orbit around the moon. Based on the propulsion data, the team has assessed that the propulsion system valve may be partially stuck. They say heating this valve over many hours may result in freeing it, allowing for ignition. Therefore, the spacecraft was instructed to heat the propulsion valve. Now, if the propulsion system is able to achieve thrust within the next few months, the mission may still recover some of the Lunar HMAP's original science mission. If more than a few months is required to heat the valve and ignite the propulsion system, then trajectory solutions may exist outside the Earth-Moon system. Then these could allow the craft to fly close to certain asteroids and characterise their hydrogen content. So, not good news for some of those CubeSats launched on the Artemis 1 mission. Well, this has been the Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie, and uh, hopefully we'll have <laughs> more news about those CubeSats in next week's The Space Show.